Hi everybody, I'm Jimmy DeYoung Jr. along with my brother Rick DeYoung and we are here on Prophecy Today Weekend. This is a program that looks at current events in the light of God's prophetic word. Rick, I'm so excited about today's program. Why don't you give us an idea of what we're going to be looking at today? Hey Jimmy, it is a privilege to be here today and I'm glad we've got our normal group of broadcast partners that we uh, talk to every week. Um, But we also have some special guests this week. We have Mike Gendron. Uh, He has a unique perspective on what is taking place in the Catholic world. Dr. Don DeYoung, no relationship uh, to us, but a good friend of ours, and he is our professor of science, and he is going to talk to us. It's been Climate Week in New York City, coinciding with the first week of the UN General Assembly, and what should our perspective on climate change be as Christians? It's something we've talked about before, but now we were going to revisit it again and see what Don has to say. So I'm looking forward to the program. Excellent. Well, let's get started with our program with our first interview, Ken Timmerman. Well, we'll get right into it. This is the, uh, the week of the UN General Assembly, and it was opened by the UN chief painting a grim picture of a divided and polarized world. What can you say about this, and what do you say about his perspective? Well, Antonio Guterres has essentially presented the globalist view of world affairs, where uh, he believes, and that's why he's UN Secretary General, he believes the United Nations has solutions, whereas many of us who believe in nation-states believe that the United Nations should, should get out of the way. Uh, but he, he makes some interesting points where he says the world is more divided than it's been in uh, many, many years, that uh, wealthy nations are winning on the science with COVID by producing these vaccines, but getting an F in ethics for not distributing them to the poorer nations of the world. His view is that you know climate change is the most serious problem that we're facing, that Israel should be recognizing Palestine and its partner for peace. Uh, and I know we're going to talk about this a little bit more as we go forward, but it is essentially a, a globalist view of the world. Now, there is one interesting point that I found, is that he was warning about tensions between the United States and China uh, without looking at you know, why those tensions exist, but just saying this is, this is a bad thing for the world, that there are two divergent approaches to military, to geopolitical strategy, and even to the development of artificial intelligence. I think it's worthwhile for us to focus on that, to think about that, because it is true. Uh, the Chinese are looking at artificial intelligence today as a means of controlling populations. The United States, at least publicly, is looking at artificial intelligence as a means of providing greater benefit to consumers and individuals. I fear that secretly we may actually be adopting the Chinese view of artificial intelligence as a means of population control. And this is something that that deeply troubles me, uh, especially with the current uh, uh, regime that we have in the United States. Well, and to continue to highlight that, we know that the previous Trump administration was not a big fan of the UN or the way the UN worked, but they do have a much more receptive White House right now to their global way of moving forward, don't we? Well, that's true. And and Biden is a self-acknowledged, a proud globalist. Uh, just as Bill Clinton was a proud globalist, and Barack Obama was a proud globalist. Remember, it was it was Obama who said that the U.S. was not an exceptional country. At least, there's no more American exceptionalism greater than Greek exceptionalism or Belgian exceptionalism. And I want to kind of segue from there to to return to something we discussed last week, uh, which was the Greeks 
supplying Patriot missile batteries to Saudi Arabia. And I really thank you for highlighting that story. Uh, I have a column in this Sunday's New York Post that talks about this. When Greece, a country like Greece that was bankrupt just a couple of years ago, supplants the United States, or replaces the United States in the vacuum we created by pulling our Patriot missile batteries out of say, Saudi Arabia, it's a sorry state of the world and it's a sorry commentary on American power when Greece replaces us as defending the world's largest producer of oil. Ouch. Ken, I wanted to talk about the Durban Conference Against Racism that was recently held and quite a few people boycotted. What is that conference? What does it signify? And why is there a controversy there? Well, this is supposed to be a conference, a U.N. conference. Let's not forget that, a U.N. conference against racism. And from its very inception, which was September 2001, just before the 9-11 attacks, it clearly and quite openly became a forum to bash Israel with the most vicious anti-Semitic smears available. The U.S. walked out in 2001, uh, and Israel, of course, walked out in 2001. And since then, the U.S. and Israel have been organizing boycotts of this every five-year conference. And this year, they've been particularly successful. The 34 countries that are now boycotting this, and they are not just the United States, and the U.K., New Zealand, Australia. So you have the five eyes countries that are all boycotting, Canada as well. But, you know, many of the mainline old Europe countries as well as the new Europe. So you've got Hungary, you've got France, you've got, uh, uh, you've got Germany, you've got the Republic of Georgia, um, Macedonia, uh, Moldova, the Netherlands, Italy, the old Europe, and then Lithuania, Slovakia and Slovenia. So it's a very successful boycott that has now been organized, again, by this United Nations Conference of Anti-Semitism, which is, I think, what the real name should be. This is, this is a global gathering of anti-Semites. Anti-Semites of the world unite. Well, let's move on to China and start to look. I, I sent you an article, and I wanted to get your thoughts on it. There is a sense that uh, China is moving away from the free market or the, the limited capitalism, I guess, if you want to call it that, and, and maybe back towards socialism. Can you talk about that? And what kind of economy do they actually have? And what kind of freedoms in, in that country do they actually have? Huh, those, are, those are really good questions, Rick. And uh, I, it's, it's interesting that not a lot of economists are really uh, focusing on this. You've got to watch Fox Business I think, to get a a view of what's actually happening inside of China these days, economically as as well as uh, culturally and politically. Uh, Look, the the new catchphrase of President for Life, Xi, is common prosperity. Uh, He's now kind of jettisoned with a great deal of embarrassment. Uh, To get rich is is fabulous um, uh, ideal of Deng Xiaoping. Now that they have a wealthy class, a, a billionaire class in China, and they have a new middle class as well of several hundred million people. Uh, now the communist Chinese uh, dictatorship, the leadership, the Communist Party, is, is again worried by the mass of people who have been left behind with this rush to wealth. People who can't, uh, they, they can't not only not buy apartments, which the middle class is doing, they don't even have money for the rent of an apartment. And so they are not 
buying the iPhones, they're not buying the automobiles, they're certainly not going to have solar, uh, uh, excuse me, electric vehicles uh, or these new houses or live in these brand new cities. They are still in the countryside and they're being left behind. And Xi is becoming embarrassed by this and wondering what he is going to do. So I think China in many ways right now is at a turning point. Uh, Xi is taking some steps which are a bit surprising cracking down on some of the billionaires, Jack Ma, who seems to have been in jail for the past six to eight months, the wealthiest man in China, cracking down on some of the real estate speculation, uh, refusing to bail out this gigantic uh, real estate company that has missed its uh, debt payment uh, just on, on Friday of this week, putting limits on gaming time for boys, for young kids, excuse me, can't play computer games more than three hours a day, removing sissy-looking boys from government TV programs. I mean, all kinds of stuff is happening, and we don't know what is driving it because she doesn't give interviews. Nobody ever asks him questions. He doesn't do press conferences. So we don't know what his thinking is, but we do know that he is president for life. So whatever he does will become the rule of law in China, but just without the law. It will simply become the rule. That's an amazing and almost hard to fathom, and in a country that is quickly becoming one of the most powerful countries in the world. Well, the second largest economy in the world, just behind the United States. With, by the way, you know, we are worried about our our debt, our government's debt of over twenty two trillion dollars. The Chinese are over forty five trillion dollars. Uh, they are their their debt, their government debt now stands at about three times GDP, whereas ours is more or less keeping pace with GDP. Uh, so they have. Serious, serious economic issues, and we don't have a clue what the economic underpinning is of that country. We don't have a clue how their economy really works. We don't know how their stock uh, market works. We don't know uh, anything. There's no accountability, uh, no visibility, no transparencies of how their companies are managed. Boy, I sure wouldn't recommend that anybody invested in any Chinese companies because you just have zero transparency. You don't have any idea what's under the hood. Well, China's also involved in the final story that I wanted to talk to you about today, um, or at least tangentially involved, is uh, in the submarine deal uh, that has the United States and the UK and France and Australia all at odds. Can you talk to us about that a little bit and tell us what the story is there? Well, yes. And and just to remind viewers, I spent uh, 10 years in France as a defense correspondent dealing with the defense industry. So I know the French defense industries very, very well. And what they've done here five years ago, they entered into this contract with Australia to sell them 12 new diesel-electric submarines. Now, France does not produce diesel-electric submarines, so they were selling them not even a prototype. I call it a paper submarine, and that is the strategic piece of this. The Australians recognize as well that nuclear submarines are, number one, much quieter. They can stay submerged for much longer than these diesel-electric subs. And they are increasingly worried by Chinese aggression in the uh, Pacific and uh, in all of those straits that are so crucial to world trade, the Straits of Malacca and uh, the Strait of Taiwan. So, yes, the Australians uh, want to be a part of the U.S.-U.K. Five Eyes Consortium. And these submarines give them interoperability with American and British systems. Very, very important. The French did not. Well, Ken, thank you so much for all you do to keep our listeners informed, and we'll be talking to you again soon. Thank you. Thank you so much, Rick. My, my pleasure. God bless.
Well, we've got to take a break. And when we come back, David Dolan's Middle East News Update, right here on Prophecy Today Weekend. Every believer needs to understand Bible prophecy. Whether you're a novice or a student, we are here to help you. Just visit prophecytoday.com and click on the link for the Prophecy Bookstore. There you will find a large selection of CD sets, DVDs, and books for the Bible Prophecy Student written by Dr. Jimmy DeYoung and other prominent scholars. While you're there, be sure to check out Dr. DeYoung's latest series called Presidents, Politics, and Prophecy. This series examines how God has used human leaders in general and specifically the last seven U.S. presidents to set the stage for Bible prophecy to be fulfilled. This was shot on location in Washington, D.C. and is available on DVD or as a 10-hour audio series on CD. Be sure to check back often for special deals. You can visit prophecytoday.com and click on Bookstore, or you can go directly to prophecybookstore.com. Have you ever wanted to know more about God's plan for the future? Have you ever tried to understand prophetic passages in God's Word, like, say, the book of Revelation, and been frustrated at not being able to figure it out? Dr. Jimmy DeYoung's latest CD series, Keys for Unlocking God's Plan for the Future, will help you gain the ability to understand where to start in your study of prophecy and allow you to read God's Word in a new and exciting way. Understanding God's prophetic Word will allow you to live a pure and productive life until Jesus returns for the church. Keys will help you gain the tools you need to understand the end-time events as foretold in God's Word. Dr. DeYoung lays out a systematic approach to Bible prophecy for those who want to know God's plan for the future. Tracks included are A Roadmap Through the End Times, The Jew in Jerusalem, Daniel and the Antichrist, Ezekiel and Messiah's Temple, and Revelation and Babylon. To order your copy of Dr. Jimmy DeYoung's Keys for Unlocking God's Plan for the Future, visit our website at prophecytoday.com. Welcome back to Prophecy Today. I'm Jimmy DeYoung, Jr. You know, each week we go to the Middle East to talk to Dave Dolan, a man who's been a journalist in the Middle East for over 35 years. And the reason that we do that is because we understand that God does have a program for the Jewish people, and he's not finished with them yet. And that's why we focus on the Middle East. But we do have late-breaking news coming out of Hebron, the first capital of Israel, where King David had his palace before he moved to the city of Jerusalem to establish the capital for the Jewish people in the city of Jerusalem. Rick, what's going on in Hebron? First question I wanted to get right into, we talked about the situation in Hebron, which is very fluid and changing, and it's a, it's a kind of a new situation. What is taking place in Hebron right now? Well, first off, I should note that it is the largest city in the territories, Judea and Samaria, that's under Palestinian authority control. At least it's supposed to be. But the uh, tribal clans in the area are very powerful. They've remained so over the years. And they have become disgruntled, to say the least, with the Palestinian Authority, with its policies, with what they say is brutality from its security forces, a lack of freedom of press, and some other things. And so the uh, clan leaders got together a couple weeks ago and said, we're going to oppose the PA ruling our town. Uh, We're going to take over everything ourselves. And we're patrolling the streets, which they've been doing for some months, actually. They have their own security forces. And uh, the chief of the chiefs, 
announced that they would put up a roadblock uh, on the main road into town and they would stop any Palestinian Authority official from even trying to enter Hebron. Now, that is a real deep uh, rift uh, inside the Palestinian body politic. And it just shows, once again, the corruption inside the PA, the killing several months ago of a leading human rights activist by the Palestinian authorities, security forces, this sort of thing going on. So while there's been an increase in violence, we've had more clashes this week in several areas. A major riot occurred during the week. We had more shooting attacks at Israeli police. So that's going on. That's mostly inspired by Hamas. This is not Hamas at all. This is inside the Fatah main political wing of the Palestinian body politic, and it's a very uh, bad sign for the future stability of the Palestinian Authority. This comes, of course, as the United States is once again funding the PA, once again training their forces after Donald Trump stopped that. So uh, it's quite a serious development indeed, and uh, violence in Hebron, it's uh, a serious issue, and of course, there's a Jewish community there that's uh, always taking care of itself first, and they will continue to do that and have to do that even more so with this chaos happening amongst the Palestinians. Well, as you mentioned, the, the current administration has released those funds to the Palestinians in that area, and uh, I read a story this week that the European Union plans to spend 3 billion euros over the next eight or nine years and helping to create what they're calling a de facto Palestinian state. That money that's being poured in there, who's going to take advantage of that? And is it going to reach the actual Palestinian people or who's going to be enriched with that? Well, if history is any guide, and it should be, um, a lot of that money will not get to the Palestinian street. It will go into the pockets of officials and the authorities the corruption under the late Yasser Arafat was rife, and it's gotten no better under Mahmoud Abbas. He's enriched himself, and other senior PA officials have been definitely skimming money off of this foreign aid coming in. It was stopped, as we said, from the U.S. for several years, but it's back again. And as you said, the EU has continued all along, along with the U.N. and others, to pour money in. And, um, you know, it would be great if the Palestinian Authority leadership really wanted a state that would be at peace with Israel, that would stop the jihad war, that would stop all terrorism, that would stop glorifying terrorism and teaching their children to kill Jews. But none of that is the case. They continue to war against Israel. They continue to want to see Israel completely destroyed. And therefore, this money just aids and abets that, uh, actually. That isn't the intention of the European countries or of the Biden administration, but it's the reality on the ground. It's been that way for a long time. And again, we have leading Palestinians revolting against their own Palestinian Authority government because of the corruption, because things are so bad. So they're saying so themselves. This isn't just me or anybody from the outside saying it. So the EU may try, but it's not going to make that much of a difference for the people. And it's not going to bring a peaceful state because it just isn't the desire of a lot of the Palestinian leadership to have such a state. It can be said that Israel's, the, the best relationship it has with any of its neighbors is with its 
longest border, the country of Jordan. Uh, Recently, King Abdullah said the status quo in in the Israeli-Palestinian conflict is unstable. First of all, why would he say that? And second, um, does this signify a change in the relationship there, or how strong is that relationship? Well, actually, Rick, they've always uh, taken that position. The Jordanian uh, regime, the government there, the Hashemites, have always said there needs to be a Palestinian state in Judea and Samaria separate from Israel that has complete authority on its own. And they say that mainly because they have 60% of their own people that trace their origins to uh, west of the Jordan River to the area they call Palestine. And they know that most of them support Hamas, they support the Muslim Brotherhood, they have never liked the peace treaty uh, that their government signed in 1994, so none of that's new. And therefore we've had from the, the late King Hussein and King Abdullah and the other leaders these repeated statements. Yes, a stable, peaceful state, little statelet there in between Israel and Jordan would be ideal for them. It would take a lot of pressure off of them from their own people. They're also worried about more refugees. They're still housing over a million Syrian refugees in the north of uh, Jordan, mostly. They've got some Iraqis still in there from the war there. So uh, they, you know, would love to see everything calm down. Well, it would be great. It's just not on the cards. The conditions are not right for it at all. Uh, We have Iran stirring up uh, all these uh, forces in the area for uh, the destruction of Israel. They're open about what their goal is. Israel's obviously focused on that and not right now on the Palestinians so much. So the status quo will continue there. A story that's been in the news here on Thursday, the U.S. Congress approved a bill to replenish the Iron Dome, a billion, uh, $1 billion bill to replenish the Iron Dome, but not without some resistance from the quote-unquote squad there who do not look at uh, Israel kindly, to say the least. So anyways, what can you tell us about this story and, and what it means to Israel and, and what this whole interaction, uh, why this took place? Well, they're becoming more and more nervous uh, over the trends in the Democratic Party in the United States, even though this is just a small group of congresswomen, mostly, that oppose Israel very strongly. They're a very vocal group. We've got to remember that that system is a defensive one, completely not offensive. It's never used to attack anyone. It's used to prevent these rockets from destroying homes and communities in Tel Aviv and all over Israel. And if we didn't have Iron Dome over the past few years, we would have had far more warfare, far more deaths, far more destruction. So this is a a weapon of peace, really. And um, they had to use thousands of these Iron Dome anti-missile rockets uh, in the May war that Hamas fired over 4,000 Uh, rockets at Israel, and uh, Iron Dome was successful most of the time in taking out these incoming rockets. So it's a very vital part of Israel's defense. And the U.S. was uh, proposing just a a billion dollars to help restock this. And these uh, squad members objected, and it wasn't included in the the major bill to keep the government open, the uh, budget bill that's coming up next week. Uh, They made them take it out, and I should say they insisted it be taken out, 
and the uh, House uh, leader did so, Nancy Pelosi. But the next day, a separate bill was voted on, and as you said, it passed overwhelmingly. Over 400 members of Congress supported it. Eleven opposed it, including all of the squad members, but it's that tone that anti-Israel, uh, one Democratic congressman who's Jewish said it's anti-Semitic. The statements that they're making are have gone beyond just being anti-Israel, but are anti-Jewish. And I think that's true. So that's very worrisome for the future. And they're particularly concerned that they seem to have, the small group of congresswomen seem to have such an enormous power over the Speaker of the House and over the Biden administration, and that bodes ill for the future relationship between Israel and the U.S. It certainly does, and and it's something we definitely need to keep an eye on. Um, you know, Israel and the United States have always been strong friends and strong allies, and it seems like that is under threat now. But well, thank you so much, Dave, for being with us today. Uh, thank you for your information, and we look forward to talking to you again next week. I'm blessed to do it, Rick. God bless. David Dolan with the Middle East News Update. When we come back, Winky Madad, right here on Prophecy Today Weekend. Have you ever wanted to visit Israel and trace the footsteps of Jesus? With Rick and Jim's VIP trips, you'll see Israel past, present, and prophetic. Our VIP trips are typically smaller groups of 8 to 12 people. This smaller group size allows us to spend more one-on-one time answering your questions and personalizing our tour. It is a very intimate experience. You'll visit each site with Bible in hand as we take the time not to only visit the sites, but to help you understand their importance to our biblical heritage and to our prophetic future. We will place special emphasis on the eternal city of Jerusalem, the most important city in the world, and the place from where Jesus will rule and reign one day. We can also customize our trip for your family or small group. Please call Joshua Travel today and see how we can make your trip extra special. Call 423-821-3635 or visit us online at joshuatravel.com. Welcome back to Prophecy Today. I'm Jimmy DeYoung, Jr. And uh, as I said last week, we would be visiting Winky Madad uh, towards the end of uh, Feast of Tabernacles or Sukkot. Winky, I know I just called you and you told me you were taking off the apron. What were you doing? Well, uh, I hope I'm not uh, disempowering <laughs> all thou male listeners, but I do the chicken soup for the Shabbat meal. That's my task. I do it in a special way. I picked it up from living with my grandmother for two years, and I don't know how it works, but it works very well. Well, Winky, we talked last week. We finished up the program. You were talking about the amount of people that were going up onto the Temple Mount. This week, you've been posting and talking a lot about, and the articles have been written about, the amount of Jewish people, religious Jews, that were going up onto the Temple Mount. Even some of the Arab were posting that there was some sort of uh, assault on the Temple Mount. Could you explain just what's been happening this last week? Okay, let's start from the beginning. The three main Jewish festivals of Passover, or Pesach, uh, the Feast of Weeks, which is Shavuot, and Sukkot, booths or tabernacles, depending on your translation, are also holidays in which, in ancient times, the Jews were obliged 
or it was their responsibility as a mitzvah, as, as, a, as a, a, a commandment, to pilgrimage, to make a pilgrimage to Jerusalem and bring a sacrifice, the first fruit, all sorts of... We all get into the details, but each holiday had its own special sacrifice, shall we say. And as I've been talking with you and, and previously with your father and your brother, we in the Temple Mount movement of various types, etc., being Jews, it's not just one movement or one organization, have always been trying to raise the consciousness about that even if it isn't today obligatory because the Temple doesn't exist. And so uh, Passover and Sukkot are very big holidays in which hundreds, uh, many hundreds, I should say, for example, today I think there were almost 600 Jews who managed to get up onto the Temple Mount. Basically, the uh, the first day that we could go up, there were over 500. So it was worthy of of, of the effort, and I was up there uh, to simply to be the present. Unfortunately, as you noticed, the Arabs do not say Jews entered the Temple Mount despite we don't like it or some sort of you know general frame where mm. flocks. We're herds, <laughs> we're stormers, mm. we're invaders, we break in. And, and that, of course, you know, turns a, a legitimate argument and dispute into something fanatical and extreme where it doesn't have to be that way. You know, it's interesting, uh, and a lot of people will attest to this that have been to Israel, and one of our main priorities is to get people up onto the Temple Mount. We feel that's the holiest spot on earth, and we try very hard to get our folks in line and up onto the Temple Mount. And many times, and if, the, if and people have been there, they've witnessed that the Jewish people that go up there realize the sanctity of the spot and... There could be nothing further from the truth than what the Arabs are reporting, that uh, it has become disruptive or they're assaulting or uh, being disrespectful. If anything, the Jewish people uh, respect the Temple Mount and what's there and uh, as they visit. So I knew that you had been up there this week. Uh, we've seen you. And, and folks, you can follow Winky on Twitter. Very entertaining, very informative, uh, very enlightening if you follow him and his different social media uh, aspects and what he does. I can also be very humorous. Yeah, <laughs> yes, you can. <laughs> I love it. It's a great follow. Winky, one of the focuses here in the United States, uh, besides our political system, which is crashing, uh, I believe, but uh, is the United Nations and what took place there this last week. Now, uh, one of the things that has come up, uh, and I wanted to ask you about the Durban Conference, and there are a lot of countries that have abstained from the Durban Conference. Uh, what is the Durban Conference, and you know why is it something that is being allowed at the United Nations? Well, the Durban Conference was a conference that was called, uh, if I'm not mistaken, originally about 20 years ago, and I think Every five years, they have a get-together, a reunion. And the original Durban conference was simply supposed to be about racism. Following what the Russians did in the 1970s at the UN, it was stolen, kidnapped, whatever other word you want to use. And the main object of the conference was to generate what we now know as BDS, a boycott, divestment, and um, I forgot what the S is already. It'll come to me eventually. 
boycott, divestment, sanctions is what BDS Thank means. You. Thank and, you. and against Israel, uh, to label Israel as an apartheid racist state, which it isn't. Anybody who's been here knows that. And it's been generating a lot of hatred, a lot of misinformation and misrepresentation. And literally, it's, it's really annoying. <laughs> it really you know, bothers you when you, you're told that you're something that you're not. Mm-hmm. So this year, there was a, a, a real effort made by Israel, harnessing a few other big countries like the United States, uh, several European countries. And uh, so far, I think close to 30 or so states have simply withdrawn their participation. Uh, what that does for the conference, I don't know, but it indicates to anybody who has, uh, as we say, uh, my grandmother used to say, anybody who has eyes in their head uh, could see that something is wrong with this Durban conference. We hope it affects the future and that Israel is able to get along with what it's doing very well, helping and assisting nations around the world that suffer racism in their own countries running off to earthquakes or uh, other national disasters that Israel's uh, quick response team does and proves itself, especially with Arab members of Knesset, Arabs members uh, as justices on our courts. Uh, there is no segregation in Israel, not even anything they knew in the United States, you know, 60 years ago. Hopefully this Durban conference is on the down. One of the things that uh, President Biden called for and maybe... Uh, King Abdullah from Jordan is the fact that basically the only way to peace in the Mideast is going to be a two-state solution. Do you see that as a way to peace in the Middle East? Okay, this is a time for the Maydad political quiz. Do you know of any two-state solution in the world that has worked? Yeah, Pakistan, you know, Cyprus, Turkey, and Greece, uh, a few other, uh, Ireland, you know, did, did it work very well there? So, you know, I don't know which is the second state. It should be Jordan, because Palestine, historically speaking, was actually a two-state solution. In 1922, they split off what we call Trans-Jordan, east of the Jordan River, and gave it to an Arab, Abdullah's great-grandfather, you know? So that was the original two-state solution. Then they wanted to divide Western Palestine again. And now we have Hamas in Gaza, which is basically its own state, you know, in, in, its, in, it, in that sense, you know, and we have Fatah in Ramallah, so that's another state. state. The Arabs in the Galil want to be recognized as an independent ethnic minority, so that's like almost another state, quote-unquote. <laughs> and, you know, and Israel's getting whittled away. That's no two-state solution. Right. That's eliminating Israel by simply taking away more territory, and we know what happened with the disengagement in 2005. That didn't work very well in terms of peace. So um, if I, you know, could catch Mr. Biden, you know, on the corner of a street, I try to engage him in conversation and tell him, you know, it's not going to work. Well, we know it's not going to work. When we look at the future, uh, and I do think that sometimes uh, people think that the only way to peace is by appeasing the Arabs. And we certainly know that that is not the case, Correct. Uh, I know, I think you know, a lot of people listening know, not enough people know, and I hope that the withdrawal from Afghanistan, while technically not being an Arab state, nevertheless it still is an Islamist uh, society, that you will not experience that principle of politics, that appeasement, especially 
with Arabs and Muslims, it's not going to work. There are 35 different passages in the Old Testament that refer to the borders that God promised Israel. Uh, do you ever see the state of Israel expanding to those borders? Uh, I had a teacher who once said, with the help of the Arabs, we'll conquer the world. But that was, of course, only in humor. I don't know. I do know that Israel in 1947, when it was partitioned, was actually a very small state in terms of territory and geography. We accepted that. The Arabs did not. And ever since, they have been attacking Israel and losing, attacking Israel and losing. And we, it seemingly, have been gaining more territory. Mm. So, you know, if I was a secret advisor to the Arabs, I'd say, you better make peace now, otherwise you're going to lose more territory <laughs> in the future. Of course, I believe, eventually, God's divine promise in terms of Israel extending from river to river, as we say, uh, will come about. Will it come about in my lifetime, in my grandchild's uh, lifetime? Uh, when redemption comes, uh, I don't know, but it will. So I think it would be better for all peoples to live in peace and security and cooperation with Israel for the benefit of all mankind, no matter who you are, Muslim, Christian, Druze, Bedouin, or, or whatever. I think that's the way the world should work, and I think that's the way God wants it to work. But I just want to thank the American Congress that authorized the funding for the Iron Dome, which is, secures Israel's security and defense against any rockets coming from Gaza. Since which the, this is an American program, I want to express my thanks, my personal thanks, and that of, I think, everybody in Israel for that. Great, Wiki. Thank you so much. I wish you th uh, the best, all the best, and the end of... Uh the feast of uh, uh, Sukkot and the end of the holidays coming up and wish the best to your family. Thank you so much for joining us and we look forward to talking to you again in the future. Good listening to you and uh, goodbye to you and our listeners. And now with us, Dr. Don Dion, no relation to the DeYoung family, but a good friend and the expert that talks about science issues going on in the world today from a Christian perspective. Don, how are you doing today? Well, thank you. Glad to join you. Our first order of business, our first thing I wanted to talk about is, again, we are looking at Climate Week. It coincides with the first week of the General Assembly at the UN. And <clears throat> so this is Climate Week in New York City. I saw a bunch of talk show hosts the other night all focused on climate change. And, of course, climate change is something that is um, ever-present, or, or the talk of climate change is ever-present in our world today. As a Christian, can we get, and a scientist, could we get your perspective and what the Christian's perspective should be on climate change? Well, I appreciate uh, <clears throat> that question. Of course, uh, global warming, climate change, it's continually uh, in, in the news. And uh, there are so many variables involved when it comes to the weather and the climate, so there's a lot of uncertainties. But the bottom line, climate on planet Earth is always changing. It's always making adjustments. Some decades are warmer, some decades are cooler. And so the news comes across as if this is a one-time thing and, you know, the end of life as we know it. But uh, the overall view, adjustments are always being made. In fact, just thinking of uh, biblical history, uh, it, of course, it all centers around um, the, the flood in Noah's day, if you want to talk about uh, extreme weather. 
But anyway, um, uh, the pre-flood centuries, the whole world was warmer. It was tropical. We can see that from the fossil record. After the flood, there was a period when uh, the climate was out of uh, balance, and we had uh, an actual ice age. Then the Earth recovered, and it's been uh, since since then we've had uh, warmer and cooler. Now, in our present decade, it does appear that the temperature worldwide has gone up a degree or two. But again, these are just ongoing adjustments. I'll tell you what really surprises me. The population of the Earth continues, of course, to grow exponentially from 1 billion up to close to 8 billion now. And yet the temperature for the whole planet changes by only a degree or two. I think that's encouraging. It shows that God has built some stability into this system that it can uh, it can really put up with population and all of the higher technology and uh, how little the temperature does change. It shows a strength and integrity to what God has set up for us. Not that we want to ignore, uh, you know, we are stewards of uh, creation and uh, we want to don't turn our back on these things. And engineering is very good at solving these problems, but um, things are not as dire as the news uh, comes across. Well, you do see uh, a tendency in the world today for people to combine issues like climate change with uh, their particular brand of politics. Uh, They would potentially set uh, these arbitrary deadlines, create a sense of urgency, combine uh, the quote-unquote fight against climate change with social justice issues. Where do you see the pitfalls in this type of thinking? Well, yes, when you tie it in with uh, politics, then there's a lot of bias that's involved with that. And then, you know, it's often um, brought up the idea that the U.S., for example, uses more than its fair share of uh, electricity. And so uh, we are accountable for things and that we should be giving compensation to the world course, economics always enters this scene immediately, and on and on it goes. But again, reality, um, our our country is uh, making great strides in this area of, uh, in in spite of all our imperfections, lots of good things are being done. For instance, if you um, look at the record for um, countries that are trying to cut back on CO2, now, that's carbon dioxide. It's a greenhouse gas. It adds to um, uh, the, the world's temperature. And so uh, by avoiding the burning of coal, you replace that with natural gas <clears throat> or with wind turbines, and that way you can cut down on CO2. And the U.S. right now is leading the world in uh, decreasing the amounts of CO2. Other countries, especially over in Asia, continue to increase So there's certainly responsibility there and things to be done, but um, our country is is doing uh, great strides in that whole area in spite of the news, again, that tries to uh, put a negative slant on things. Well, my final question here is, and I do appreciate your your perspective there. One, God is still holding all things together. Um, and two, we are making strides. We are making progress. And we do have a responsibility as stewards. So I definitely appreciate your perspective. And, and it allows us to give a little context to some of these discussions that are taking place nowadays. But my final question is, it's concerning a meteor that recently passed by um, 
near the Earth. It was about the size of a 747, and they say it came from the direction of the sun, so they could not see it coming. Um, therefore, you know, we wouldn't have a chance to do anything if it was uh, going to have a, a, an impact. So just an interesting, uh, as we observe God's creation and as we're living in this world, uh, tell us a little bit about meteors and what kind of danger do we face? And this is kind of a fun topic to talk about, and it's an interesting topic as well. Well, certainly. You know, in the solar system, along with our eight or nine major planets and comets, there is a lot of um, space debris. Uh, these are um, stony objects, as you say, the size of a, uh, an aircraft, some uh, the size of a, a larger building. Uh, a lot of these meteorites are metallic. They have a lot of iron and nickel in them. And uh, some of them are like mountains flying through space. And uh, some do occasionally come in the vicinity of, of planet Earth, and uh, we've certainly been impacted with smaller objects, and there are some craters here and there around the planet. Uh, often um, they do show up um, uh, at the last moment. Uh, they're small enough that uh, we can't pick them up until they're uh, headed our way. The interesting thing is uh, the ones that do come close to us have a way of skipping off the top of our atmosphere. Uh, that's kind of a protective blanket. Uh, and uh, so that's a, that's a layer of um, security that we have. Uh, I know there's a lot of publicity out of a larger uh, object that could strike the Earth and destroy the planet. Of course, that's not God's plan. The future of this world is in His hands. So, uh, yeah, these meteors um, come and go. As a smaller one strike the Earth, that's when we call them a, a meteorite. But again, it's, uh, it's not a random chance that um, this world would be, be uh, eliminated. Again, uh, God has better plans for that. So uh, really, these are interesting objects. Um, they are um, following um, careful orbits that um, God has um, set up for them. It just shows how predictable it all is. And by the way, some of these uh, uh, meteors, as I mentioned, are metallic. They could be um, very valuable. They have the elements they have in them. Now, with all of our problems here on Earth, we're not able to uh, uh, grasp those things and, and, and mine them. But it's uh, a reminder that there are treasures out there in space on planets and on meteors and meteorites. And uh, God has uh, filled his creation with amazing detail and variety. Well, thank you so much for your insight. It's fun to observe God's universe, God's creation, and it's also reassuring to know that he's got it all in his hands, as you say. Thank you, Don, and we'll hopefully talk to you again soon. Well, thank you. Good visiting. Well, one of our friends that we have that uh, is a longtime broadcast partner of our family, of my father in the past, uh, Mike Gendron. Mike has a website, proclaimingthegospel.org. Uh, great to have you with us today, Mike. So this week, I want to get right into this. As we are following current events in the light of God's prophetic word, we see the things that are happening around the world. And of course, as your ministry to Catholic religion, one of the main things that's been in the news lately is a lot of information about the Pope. And actually, CNN uh, made a statement that the Pope is the most powerful man in history. So with all of that information, what what can we do with this information and how can we talk to fellow Catholics, our friends, about the Pope? Well, thank you for the opportunity because, you know, that's my great compassion is to reach 1.3 billion Roman Catholics who are 
really being led down the wide road to destruction by what I believe is the most influential false prophet on the earth today, and that's Pope Francis. And Jimmy, I just say this in in light of uh, the scriptures, which is my supreme authority. The Pope is uh, not only the head of a false religion, but he is also uh, claiming himself to be the Holy Father, and there's only one Holy Father, and that's who Jesus addressed in his high priestly prayer. He's also claiming to be the head of the church, and there's only one head of the church, and that's Jesus Christ who shed his blood to purchase the church. And he's also claiming to be the vicar of Christ, and we know that when Jesus said he must leave, he would send a helper in his place, and he wasn't referring to a papacy, but to the Holy Spirit. So he's stolen the three titles given to the triune God. So I would just encourage your listeners to recognize the Roman Catholic religion as a mission field. And sometimes that's difficult because many of our evangelical leaders are suggesting that the Roman Catholic religion is a valid expression of Christianity. In fact, a recent survey showed that two-thirds of 1,000 senior pastors that were polled said that the Pope was their brother in Christ. Mm. And that just is mind-boggling to me when you recognize that this Pope not only embraces a false gospel, but he teaches a false gospel. And we know that because of that, he's under the condemnation of God based on Galatians 1, 6-9. And so one of the articles that you wanted to talk about is the Pope asking Catholics to pray in August for the Church to reform in light of the Gospel. Well, if he's the head of the Church, why doesn't he just usher in the Reformation? Mm. You know, why doesn't he go back to the Reformation Gospel that proclaim that we are saved by grace alone, through faith alone, and Christ alone, according to Scripture alone, all for the glory of God alone? That's all he has to do. He doesn't have to ask people to pray. He just needs to take action. But as we come across uh, next month being the 504th anniversary of the Reformation, we are so thankful that God raised up these reformers that started abiding in God's Word, then they discovered the truth that set them free, and they were set free from this religious deception. And that's my prayer for Roman Catholics, that they would run from this false teacher, and they would start abiding in God's Word. You know, Jimmy, the nature of deception is that people don't know they're deceived until they are lovingly confronted with the truth. And the only way to do that is to either read the Word of God or to go into an evangelical church where the Word of God is faithfully preached, and then they will see how deceived they are about life's most critical issue. And so that's why we have a website full of resources. And I've really got a burden for Roman Catholics. In fact, I I have a, a message entitled Prophecy and the Pope that exposes the papacy for its future role in the end-time seduction of humanity. And we want to make that DVD message available to all of your listeners at a 20% discount at proclaimingthegospel.org. It means that much to me that I, I really want to get the resources out to people that have a real burden to reach Roman Catholics. Excellent. Wow, that's a great offer, Mike. Thank you so much. So again, when CNN put this piece out that the Pope was the most powerful man in history, we know his influence in the past, but you do believe that he will play a role in the future, correct? 
Well, definitely, and and I understand what CNN meant because he's not only a religious leader, but he's also a political leader. He's the head of state. The Vatican is a sovereign nation, and that's why we have ambassadors from all over the world coming to bow down to the Pope as a political leader and to get advice from him. And so he's not necessarily this Pope. We don't know the Lord's timing, but the papacy will have a major role in end-time prophecy because together the false prophet will hold hands with the Antichrist, and together they will bring in a period of peace. But we also know that they will force the world to take a mark and there will not be any buying or selling if people do not have the mark. Mm. And I really believe that we have a precursor to that mark right mm-hmm. now when there's a mandate now to be vaccinated. And this is very troubling to see all of this taking place. But in one sense, it's also a blessing. I think we're living in the most blessed generation of all time because we may see the return of our Lord Jesus Christ for his church. I'm expecting that any moment, actually, that's my anticipation of the imminent return of our Lord to take us home to be with him. Mike, thank you again for that offer. Please just tell our our listeners again how they can get the DVD. Yeah, you can either call our ministry, and the phone number is 817-379-5300, and just ask for the offer on Prophecy Today. Or you can go to our website at proclaimingthegospel.org, and that'd be a 20% discount on the message Prophecy and the Pope. And I know your listeners are very interested in Mm -hmm. how the pathway will take place and be an instrumental part of the future event. Thank you again, Mike. Thank you for being a friend of the family and being a broadcast partner with us for so many years. We look forward to talking to you again in the near future. Well, thanks so much for having me. Keep looking up. Our redemption is nice. Folks, we're going to have to take a break. We'll be right back right after the news, right here on Prophecy Today Weekend. Welcome back to Prophecy Today. I'm Jimmy DeYoung, Jr. Remember, this program examines current events in the light of God's prophetic word. While we're starting our last half hour, we have one more interview to go, and then I'll take a look at the book at the very end of the program. Rick, we do have one more interview. Uh, That's right, Jimmy. We're going to be talking with Dave James, and he's talking about the head chaplain of Harvard University is an admitted atheist, which is... Very interesting, considering that Harvard University was started as a university to train pastors. It also brings back memories for us. We actually, in our last video called Is the USA in Bible Prophecy, our father, uh, the, the late Dr. Jimmy DeYoung, was there with Pastor Paul Blair, and they were talking about the biblical foundation of not only Harvard, but of the USA in general. Yes. I, in fact, I'm holding in my hand right now the DVD, Is the United States in Bible Prophecy? You know, this video basically starts out, we go to Plymouth, Massachusetts, where some of the first European settlers came hoping to establish a new Israel. In later generations, many students of the Bible have wondered if this country can be found in the prophetic scriptures. Our father, Dr. Jimmy DeYoung, examines both history and scripture to provide solid answers to that important question, as you said, which is the most asked question in Bible prophecy in our conferences, is the United States in Bible prophecy. And we'd like to make this DVD available to all who would like it. Jimmy, that's a great idea. You know what we'd like to do? If you'd like to call, we want 
to get this information into your hands. If you'd like to call our office here in Chattanooga, Tennessee at 423-825-6247. We'd like to let you get that DVD, Is the USA in Bible Prophecy, was filled with so much great information. We'd like to give you that for a donation of any amount. We want to get this video into your hands. We do need the support and we appreciate the support, but we also want to get that information out to you. So for a donation of any amount, we'd love to send you this video. That's a great offer, Rick. And folks, again, that number is 423-825-6247. Well, let's get right to our interview, Rick, with David James. Thank you very much, Jimmy. And as you said, I do have Dave James with us. Dave, we received today's listener question a couple of weeks ago, and it concerns the rapture versus the second coming as it relates to Jesus's teaching in Luke 17. Yeah, it's a good question, Rick. And actually, dispensationalists are divided when it comes to interpreting the passage and then the similar passage in Matthew 24, although Jesus spoke the two in two different contexts, so it's not the same teaching. Our listener wrote this. In Luke 17, beginning in verse 24, it says, For as the lightning flashes and lights up the sky from one end to the other, so it will be on the day when the Son of Man comes. Then in verse 34, he continues, That night two people will be asleep in one bed, one will be taken, the other left. And in verse 37, so these signs indicate that the end is near. Then he writes, those verses seem to depict a rapture, but it appears he comes visibly, and the Lord says there are signs. Are these verses not talking about the rapture? So some say this teaches a post-tribulational rapture, which it doesn't, and some dispensationalists say that the taking away and the parallel teaching in Matthew 24 is a pre-trib rapture, and that Jesus has been talking about a second coming at the end of the tribulation, and then he backs up to talk about the rapture before the tribulation. However, I, I think Luke 17 makes that particular, in fact, both uh, interpretations almost impossible. And in both Matthew and Luke, if it's the rapture, the reference that is made to the days of Noah is nonsensical because it turns the illustration upside down. And what I mean by this is, the taking away by the flood was the judgment, but the rapture is a taking away to the blessing of being with the Lord. So it can't be the rapture. So in both Luke and Matthew, this is a taking away of all unbelievers to judgment at the second coming of Christ. In fact, we read about judgments in Matthew chapter 25 after Jesus says it. And those who are left on the earth, uh, those who are left behind at the end, will inhabit the millennial kingdom in their natural bodies. Well, that's great information, Dave. Uh, our topic for this week isn't necessarily a breaking story, and we've had other important issues to deal with since it was first reported that an atheist had been elected to be the president of Harvard University's chaplain group. Yeah, Rick, it's an interesting and I would say an unfortunate development on some levels, uh, but I guess it isn't surprising given Harvard's longtime abandonment of the principles it was founded on. Uh, a few weeks ago, the New York Times ran an article with the title, The New Chief Chaplain at Harvard, an Atheist, and it had the tagline, The Elevation of Greg Epstein, Author of Good Without God, reflects a broader trend of young people who increasingly identify as spiritual but religiously non-affiliated. And, Rick, I thought uh, I would just read the opening paragraph of that article because I think it's helpful in putting this in context. Uh, the article says, 
The Puritan colonists who settled in New England in the 1630s had a nagging concern about the churches they were building. How would they ensure that the clergymen would be literate? And their answer was Harvard University, a school that was established to educate the ministry and adopted the motto, Truth for Christ and the Church. So that was Harvard's motto. And the article continues with, it was named after a pastor, John Harvard, and it would be more than 70 years before the school had a president who was not a clergyman. Now, Epstein, the current head chaplain, the president, grew up in a Jewish home, uh, but has been Harvard's humanist chaplain since 2005, and he'll coordinate the activities of more than 40 university chaplains who lead the Christian, the Jewish, Hindu, Buddhist, and other religious communities on campus. So there are many different religious communities, So, and, and many of them are not Christian. So they had to find someone who could work with all of those. And it's also interesting that he was voted in unanimously by his fellow chaplains. Well, as you said, a number of our older, well-known universities began as religious institutions, but have long since become secular and largely humanist in their philosophy. How did this happen? Well, I found an article uh, from back from 2007 about this issue on the Answers in Genesis website with the title, Harvard, Yale, Princeton, Oxford, Once Christian, and it carries the tagline, many of America's and England's oldest universities were established as religious institutions, but now they advocate evolutionary thinking, what happened. And then the article goes on to state this, most of the colleges in the United States that started over 300 years ago were Bible-proclaiming schools originally. Harvard and Yale, which were originally Puritan, and Princeton, which was originally Presbyterian, once had rich Christian history. And the author of that article also notes that in Great Britain, Oxford, uh, Cambridge, and the University of Edinburgh, and others had a Christian heritage, and there are many others that could be cited as well. And the article then cites a book by two secular historians titled The Sacred and the Secular University, and the authors discussed the change in American universities from the Christian worldview to naturalistic philosophy. And they point out that universities across the board fell first in the area of science. And to quote them, they say, In the sciences, the critical departure from this hegemonic construct took place in the 1870s. And they add that methodological naturalism was the critical innovation. So, Rick, in the 1700s and the 1800s, theologians and Bible scholars began trying to accommodate new scientific research and discoveries in geology and paleontology and the theories of origins from men like Darwin and others. And this led to cracks in the biblical foundations of these schools as the idea of an old earth gained popularity and the idea of a global Genesis flood and trustworthy biblical chronologies were being abandoned. And when you combine this with the growing textual criticism of the scriptures and a disdain uh, and a dismissal uh, of the supernatural, this together was, was devastating. David, you sent me an article from Christianity Today where the author had an interesting take on this Harvard chaplain issue and why he voted for Epstein as an evangelical chaplain himself. You're right, Rick. Uh, This article was written by Pete Wilson about three weeks ago, and it carried the title, Why I Voted for the Atheist President of Harvard's Chaplain Group. And Wilson wrote this, 
For seven years, I have worked at Harvard as an evangelical campus minister employed by InterVarsity Christian Fellowship. I believe the Bible is authoritative and entirely trustworthy as God's Word. I believe that Jesus alone is the way of salvation and that no one comes to the Father except through Him. So you have to admit, Rick, that's a pretty clear and strong conservative and sound evangelical statement. Uh, It's a fairly long article, so I'll have to pick out just a few of his main points. So first he notes that the president of the Harvard chaplains does not direct spiritual life on campus. He says that they are a decentralized, non-hierarchical community of independent chaplaincies with about 40 chaplains spanning roughly 25 denominations, organizations, traditions, and religions. And then he also points out that chaplains there are generally not employees of Harvard. Uh, They don't report to any higher-ups on matters of faith or doctrine, and they are able to function by consensus uh, because no one is expected to to agree on doctrine, and that would be true if you have 40 different uh, religious groups involved. And Wilson stated that he voted for Epstein because he thought he was the best man for the job, which is about assisting all the chaplains in their work and isn't necessarily a reflection of the spiritual climate on the Harvard campus. Now, I would wonder about that when you have so many different religious groups, but Harvard has become what you would essentially call a secular institution. And then finally, uh, he says this, which I think is interesting. Uh, In Harvard's particular case, if you go back just a few decades, evangelicals were largely excluded from religious life on campus. Uh, The group that preceded the Harvard chaplains was restricted to mainline Protestant church ministers. So he sees this whole role of chaplains uh, with evangelicals being involved uh, as a positive, and then having an atheist is more of an anomaly and, and not really pertinent. Interesting. Well, for my final question, I'd like to get back to that Answers in Genesis article that talked about how the foundation was eroded because of trying to reconcile science with beginnings. Would you say that the erosion has continued in other Christian schools because of changing views on Bible prophecy and end-time things? I do, Rick. I don't think there's any doubt about it. And your dad and I talked about this quite a bit over the years. So Answers in Genesis obviously deals with uh, first things, beginnings. And uh, and the reason is that whether we're talking about first things or last things and everything in between, it comes down to how, how we handle the Word of God and what we believe about it and how it should be interpreted. And if we believe the Bible is the inspired, inerrant, infallible, sufficient, and authoritative Word of God, then that affects how we interpret it, and it should drive us to use a biblical method of interpretation. And one key is to use it consistently for every part of the Bible, whether we're talking about historical narrative, wisdom literature, doctrinal teaching, or prophetic and apocalyptic material. And Rick, whether we realize it or not, we, ha- we all have what I call theological packages. And what I mean by that is that all of our theology is in that package, and each area is affected by things we believe in other areas. And especially what we believe about the Bible, our bibliology, affects everything else we believe from Genesis chapters 1 and 2 to Revelation 21 and 22. And the things in between those chapters include what I believe about 
God the Father, the Son, and the Spirit, and what I believe about man and angels, and what I believe about sin and salvation, and what I believe about Israel and and the Church. So it's almost impossible to be completely unbiblical in one area, but completely on target with everything else. And and so I think that has led to the erosion uh, of the commitment to biblical truth in so many Christian institutions over time. And and I think we're seeing the end result of this, the, the trajectory of even Bible institutes is moving away from a, a directly Bible-centered approach. Christian universities is even uh, further along that trajectory, and every generation there has to be, I think, a new group of men and sometimes new schools to get back to the foundation. Well, David, I appreciate your efforts to keep us educated, and I see it as two main goals. Uh, the first goal is to make sure that we have a biblical Based view from Genesis to Revelation because uh, we get off track in one area, it'll put us off track in the other area. But the other thing is not to reconcile um, our view of the world or our experience, not try to reconcile the Bible to us, but we reconcile the world by the Bible. And that's the way I look at it, and I think that's a great thing that we can continue to do. So thank you for that information, and uh, we look forward to talking to you again next week. Thanks, Rick. I really appreciate the opportunity. Hey everyone, this is Dave James with the Alliance for Biblical Integrity. You hear me each week discussing current theological issues with Jimmy DeYoung on the Prophecy Today weekend broadcast. We founded the Alliance for Biblical Integrity because we saw a need for an apologetics and discernment ministry that would be an important resource for local churches, schools, and ministry organizations that face ever-changing theological challenges in today's world. I teach many different courses and seminars in the United States and around the world and can tailor the seminars for Sunday schools, Bible studies, and church services, and the courses for weekend conferences of 6 to 10 hours. For more information, you can go to the ABI website at biblicalintegrity.org. That's one word, biblicalintegrity.org, and click on Courses and Seminars on the main menu. You can also contact me personally through the contact page on the ABI website. I look forward to hearing from you. The book of Revelation is God's final word to man and the timeline of the last days revealed to the Christians. This symbolism-filled example of apocalyptic literature can be difficult to understand, especially when simply reading it from beginning to end. Dr. Jimmy DeYoung's latest book, Revelation, A Chronology, takes a walk through the prophetic book of Revelation in the order that the events will take place, chronologically, sharing insights into its true meaning and doing so in an easy-to-understand and practical way. If you have difficulty understanding the book of Revelation, get your copy of Revelation, A Chronology, and let Dr. Jimmy DeYoung aid you in your understanding of this profound end-times prophecy book that God has preserved in His Scriptures for Christians in the last days. To order your copy of Jimmy D. Young's Revelation, a chronology, call us toll-free at 877-674-3298 or visit our website at prophecytoday.com. Welcome back to Prophecy Today. I'm Jimmy D. Young Jr. Thank you for listening to this week's edition of Prophecy Today Weekend. If you missed any of our programs, you can go back and re-listen to it at our website, prophecytoday.com. After listening to our broadcast partners talk today, one of the things that I thought about is how should Christians stand up for their faith in such an anti-Christian world? 
As Christians, the two things we can do to stand up for Christ are to live according to his word and grow our own knowledge of him. Christ said, let your light shine before men. Matthew chapter 5, verse 16. This means that we should live and act in a way that supports the gospel. We should also arm ourselves with knowledge, both of the gospel and of the world around us. 1 Peter 3, 15 says, But in your heart set apart Christ as Lord. Always be prepared to give an answer to everyone who asks you to give the reason for the hope that you have. But do this with gentleness and respect. All we can do is live and teach as Christ would and let him take care of the rest. Critics of Christianity have become more vocal recently. This is partly because there are many people who do not believe in God or understand the truth about him at all. Yet the apparent increase of anti-Christians is also due to perception. As with many topics, those who truly despise Christianity are the loudest and most vocal of the non-believers. The vast majority of those who do not believe don't care enough to bother believers. The few angry, vocal, bitter unbelievers make enough noise to seem more numerous than they are. The typical insults from the non-religious crowd is to refer to believers as ignorant, stupid, brainwashed, or to the otherwise suggest that those who have faith are less intelligent than those who do not. When a Christian stands up intelligently for his faith, the terms change to bigot, extremist, or zealot. When people who know that the believer is kind and loving hear this, the atheist starts to look like the fool that he or she is. Most non-believers have no personal reason to see Christians negatively, but they sometimes hear so much from the loud anti-Christians that they just assume it is so. They need examples of Christ-like living to see the truth. Of course, when someone claiming to be a Christian says or does something that is not Christ-like, the angry, loud crowd is there to identify him as a typical religious hypocrite. This is something we have been warned to expect. Romans chapter 1, Matthew chapter 5. The best thing to do is to cite a passage of the Bible that speaks against what that person did and remind the atheist that just because a person says he is a Christian, and even if he thinks he is a Christian, that does not mean that he is. Matthew chapter 7, 16 and 20 tells us that the true Christians will be known by their actions, not merely by their profession, and remind critics that absolutely no one lives without sinning at all. That's Romans chapter 3, verse 23. An important thing to remember is that no one, no matter how persuasive, can force anyone to believe anything he doesn't want to believe. No matter what the evidence, no matter what the argument, people will believe what they want to believe. That's Luke chapter 12, verses 54 and 56. Conviction is not a Christian's job. The Holy Spirit convicts people. John chapter 14, verses 16 and 17. And they choose whether or not to believe. What we can do is present ourselves in a way that is Christ-like as possible. It is sad that there are many atheists who have read the entire Bible looking for ammunition against Christians, and there are many Christians who have hardly read the Bible at all. It is hard for the angry crowd to accuse a Christian of being a hateful, cruel bigot when that person demonstrates a life of kindness, humility, and compassion. When a Christian can discuss, debate, or debunk secular arguments accurately, 
the label of ignorant no longer fits. A Christian who has read the secular arguments and can politely expose their flaws helps to deflate the stereotypes advanced by atheists. Knowledge is the weapon, and it's invincible when we let Christ direct us on how to use it. You know, this program is done every week so that the body of Christ might understand where they are and living in the end times, how close that the rapture of the church is. You know, as we heard things today, and as you have heard things over the 21 years that this program has been done, you know that each and every moment of every day, we are getting closer to the rapture of the church. Our broadcast partners bring information to the table, not just information about news, but information that fits into future Bible prophecies left to be fulfilled. There are over a thousand prophecies in the Bible. 500 of those prophecies have been fulfilled. That means that there are 500 prophecies left to be fulfilled. But those are all going to take place after the rapture of the church. We believe in an imminent rapture that can take place at any moment and any time. You know, one of the things that my brother and I talked about is to make sure that we present the gospel in every program. That gospel is simple. Maybe this is the first time that you're hearing any of this information. It's really as easy as ABC. Admit that you're a sinner. Romans 3.23 For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Believe in Jesus Christ and realize that he died for your sins on the cross. John 3.16 For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only Son, that whosoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. And then it's as simple as asking Jesus for forgiveness by confessing and repenting of your sins. First John 1 John 1.9 If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just and will forgive us of our sins and purify us from all unrighteousness. You know, it's important that you make a decision as to what you believe and that you let someone know. Depending on what you do with this information will affect you the rest of eternity. Remember, Bible prophecy is used for two reasons. One, to educate the body of believers, the body of Christ, to help us to understand where we are in the end times. And the second is to motivate us to evangelize, to tell others about Jesus Christ and what he has done for us by giving his life in his death, burial, and resurrection on the cross. We do thank you for joining us today, but don't let this information just be something of a hobby. Use it to not only to affect your life, but to affect those around you for all eternity. I'm Jimmy DeYoung Jr. Thank you for joining us today on Prophecy Today Weekend. You know, with all that's happening in our world, that rapture could happen at any moment. So let's keep looking up until... Thank you so much for joining us today. This is Jay Johnson inviting you to join us again next week for more of Prophecy Today. Prophecy Today is a listener-supported production of Shofar Communications in Chattanooga, Tennessee. Mm-hmm.